This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network in South Asian Studies. I'm a host for the channel, Stakshi Singh. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Mayur Suresh, a senior lecturer in law at Swiss University of London, to discuss his recent book titled Terror Trials, Life and Law in Delhi's Courts, which was published by Fordham University Press in 2023. In this book, Dr. Suresh provides us with an insightful ethnographic account of terror trials in Delhi. His work sheds lights on how individuals accused of terror-related offences interact with the law, skillfully negotiating legal technicalities and procedures to intervene in their own trials and make their voices heard. Dr. Mayur Suresh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so so much for having me. Um, To start off, Dr. Suresh, as a former practicing lawyer turned academic, could you discuss the motivations that informed your transition? That's a good question. So I think... uh, is I think like most people's lives, it's a bit zigzag. So I kind of I was interested in I I was I always kind of knew I was interested in the world of academia and the world of ideas. Um, and so I started practicing. Uh, so I moved to Delhi to work with Jawahar, as the the book kind of indicates the introduction, um, as a way of kind of looking at the field before I started my PhD field work in a way. It's kind of pre gaming it in that sense. Um, so I, I actually intended only to be there for the duration of the tribunal, the semi-tribunal. But I kind of got into it, you know. It's just um, you're there. It, there's a there's um, it's it's really interesting work. It's you, it's important work. Um, you feel you feel validated by the work that you're doing. I mean, it's obviously frustrating and gut wrenching and and has its own problems. But there's a kind of like immediacy to practice that that acad- academia doesn't have. Um, and so that was that was kind of it. So I mean, I, I didn't intend to stay much longer than the time of the tribunal, but you know, I was there. I enjoyed it so much. I really enjoyed working with Jawahar. I really enjoyed working with the other colleagues we had over there. Um, so I kind of stayed on. Um, I think for me, the transition into academia, um, it, it it was always on the back burner. Something that I wa- I knew I wanted to do eventually. Um, but yeah, I think it was just um, I kind of felt that I had done enough of practice. Like I enjoyed the work, obviously, but I just had enough, I think, after about five or six years. So um, that's how I kind of went in. Then it was um, the kind of the PhD, the field work kind of morphed into my PhD field, or the, the practice morphed into my PhD field work. And that's how I kind of got into academia. Right. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Um, I think we are comfortable now delving into the book. So curious to know what sparked your interest in studying terror trials. So I think for me, the initial interest in terrorism trials was to see um, 
because in a sense it was at the edge of law in a sense right so um there was there were obviously things like the unforced special powers act um there were other exceptional laws throughout india and for me the terror trials or the uapa um kind of represented the edge of what was legality right it was kind of this this borderland between law and violence and where or where laws violence kind of came up in full force and you saw it in like in its in its full manifestation um so it's kind of interesting in, in the terror trials as a liminal area of thinking of a kind of a lawless law kind of the and and it comes also from you know my kind of did preliminary work or initial work with civil rights organizations and you saw how anti terror trials were being used it wasn't just against bombs and guns so to speak but against civil rights activists um against free speech against people putting up posters membership um and then you have the obvious ways in which um obvious yet anecdotal ways in which um it's been used against minorities whether it's dalits or muslims or scheduled tribes or, or you know other other vulnerable populations and so i think that's why it i was it, it it was interesting to me um as a kind of um the the borderland of legality um uh, yeah that's why that's my initial entry point into it and the book kind of charts my more rethinking that in, initial entry point yeah that's really interesting um so what led you to adopt legal anthropology as a means of understanding and studying the terror trials um so i think for me i mean it's um there's something uh um unique about ethnography and anthropology as a way of understanding the everydayness of certain things um there's no way that you can get close to people right or understand their everyday lives except for ethnography and and um and kind of theorizing the anthropological concepts right there's the and there's there's the um, there is the everyday there's the liveness to it there's the vibrancy to it um which i which i which i've always appreciated with with ethnography um and so you're right there are different ways i could have done this i think looking at at the way looking at an archival sources or kind of more historical process would have been would have been good as well um looking purely as a lawyer lawyer is interesting as well but these don't access kind of the everyday life of of the law which is something that I was interested in and i think this the it's it's this transition i think for example if i was looking at it as as um as a historian or even as a um as a lawyer lawyer i might have stuck with the um, kind of the state of exception type framework because you know i'd be basing on archival sources based on judicial archives basing it on legal archives in a certain sense um and so i think i would have may have theoretically i would might may have stuck with kind of looking at it as a form of exceptionalism but i kind of as the book charts out and this is also a function of ethnography it, it makes you reevaluate um kind of concept that you went into the field with your you suddenly you come with this theoretical baggage and suddenly you're confronted by 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 life um and so it it forces a revaluation of con- concepts which also is something i appreciated with um with ethnography and anthropology right um and could you speak a bit more about why state of exception was not the adequate or you know appropriate framework for your study yeah so i think i mean it it's a useful framework um to think about the ways in which uh, kind of law and violence morph into one another right um and it definitely helps you think about how um it helps you move away from kind of 
ideas of legality as being rule bound, uh, bound by rationality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there are different ways of getting that point, getting to that point. Um, but this is one way of thinking about it, and it really kind of forefronts this idea of violence, okay? any experience of laws and experience of violence itself. Um, and the, I think for me, the problem that I had with it is there's no way of accounting for what life looks like that in that place, right? Um, so the state of exception usually is twinned with this idea of bare life. Um, but the life you see there is not bare life. Like it's it's a it's a vibrant form of life. It's not a happy form of life. It's not a good life by any ethical measure. But it's not a dead form of life. It's not a life that is barely there. Um, there are ways in which people inhabit the courtroom space. There are relationships that are formed. There are ways in which um, terror accused, as I detail in the book, kind of deal with legal technicalities. So there's a certain vibrancy to it um, that isn't captured by the state of exception and bare life framework, right? And also what I figured was that through my conversations with um, with um, kind of civil rights activists, human rights activists, and kind of my knowledge of the theoretical background, theoretical um, debates on the state of exception, I think people are using the state of exception in different ways, right? So there's the, obviously the theoretical, the Agamben, um, Membe type theoretical and Carl Schmitt type theoretical framework, which you know that 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 the law is a harbinger of state of exception. That eventually, you know, all life or or the state of exception is enacted on the on people's bodies in modernity. Uh, the paradigm of government is um, is Auschwitz, not Athens, and the paradigm of of personhood is bare life, not citizenship. That's that's the theoretical baggage that 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 these kind of thinkers bring with them. Um, and there's a civil rights type argument, right? The state of exception. But that is a very different type of argument, right? The civil rights type argument, because a state of exception is something obviously to be for the civil in the civil rights argument, the human rights argument is something to be pushed back against. But it's a return to law, right? It's a return to constitutionalism. And that movement of return of what is a good law, of what law should should be, is something I think that's important to hold on to. And that's something that kept on coming back in my ethnography as well, that there is a way of doing things. It should be done in a certain way. The state is not doing it in that way. So this is not a, a, a pure repudiation of the idea of legality or constitutional. This is a reclaiming of it, of of legality, of what law should like, of what the constitution should be doing, right? So it's not, it's not a negation of law, but a reclaiming of that space. And it's that kind of move that I wanted to capture. And that's why I moved away from kind of the state of exception type framework. Uh, thank you for that very comprehensive answer. Um, I, I think it would be good to kind of also discuss about your social location and positionality and what role did it play in shaping your the research process, particularly in terms of accessing the field, uh, which in this case means court sites, which you mentioned were kind of easy to access. So could you please elaborate on that? So I th like I said earlier in the, in the start of the interview, I practice law in in Delhi eventually for a couple of years after that, a um, couple of years before I started my PhD. Um, and that knowledge, I think, of the legal space made accessing it a lot more easier. Like, I mean, I, I'm a, like my first day in court, I didn't know what I was doing, but eventually you get used to the legal space, I think. Um, and uh, so that way of, of being present in the courtroom, I think, helped. Um, uh, in terms of so, I mean, then, I mean, which means that also, you know, I kind of knew how to comport myself, right? Um, I, you you dress not to stand out. You dress in black and white. You don't wear kutta pajama, you know, stuff like that. Um, 
you uh, know where the accused are going to be held in the courtroom space, usually at the back of places. You know where the, the prosecutor is. So you kind of have a good sense of the geography or the layout of courtrooms uh, and where people are in the courtroom space. So for, in that sense, that, that helped me a lot, that kind of background knowledge of, of being a lawyer, which is not to say that if I just jumped into the field directly, I would not have developed that over time, but I felt like I came in with an advantage um, in the sense that I knew all this already. I mean, so it, it, that way it was good. It was also a learning process. Um, and I think that process of learning, I, I felt in a sense that my process of learning the law kind of obviously influenced the, the direction of the book as well. Because it's it's something that you have to kind of constantly work with and work towards and mess up and make mistakes and, you know, stuff like that, which is also something that the terror accused did as well in obviously radically different circumstances um, and different stakes as well. Um, uh, I guess my own... It's it's funny you ask that because you know there's one I I assume that my name sounds Hindu, um, but there's one moment in the book which I talk about the 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 lawyer doesn't know if I'm Hindu or Muslim and has this really this this exchange with me obviously trying to suss me out as Hindu or Muslim. Um, I think the fact that I was working with the defense and I'm working with a lawyer who knew the defense made people trust me more. I think, or at least the terror accused trust me more. I suspect that was the case. However, seeing how friendly they were with prosecutors, with with police officers, I don't know if that's true. Um, I suspect if I'd gone on as a prosecutor, I mean, I would have, uh, along with the prosecution, as other as other kind of ethnographies of courtroom spaces have done, um, there may have been a difference. But actually, to be honest, I don't think there would be a retrospect. But that was my initial thinking as well, that being with the defense, I could have, you know, easier, better interactions with with um, the terror accused, who kind of was the main focus of my of my PhD, of my of my research. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, I, I definitely think that now we can move on to focus on some of the details, which I found very interesting about your book. So one of the star questions that I had was about the introduction of your book. Uh, you highlight this idea that law is an inherently violent institution, and you also express a healthy skepticism toward the notion of rule of law being synonymous with the so-called rule of good law. However, your interactions with the terror accused have shed light uh, on some of the ingenious ways they conceive of and intervene in the legal system. So could you also please elaborate on this aspect of your research? Yeah, so I think when I depart from kind of critical legal studies type framings of the law is to think of it as in relation, purely in relation to violence, right? Whether it's epistemic violence or physical violence, you know. So I think what I was really intrigued by when I started practicing, when I started my field work, is that how people were constantly using the law, right? Um, as I kind of sit say in the introduction, like Yasin Bayu, who's who's accused and convicted of terrorist offenses, leads me to the courtroom space, right? He there's a kind of familiarity with the language. He knows 124A, he knows 153A, he knows all kind of all the procedures, all there's a familiarity with which he speaks, and he knew how to navigate a file, he knew what what words meant what. Um which is not to say that his knowledge was perfect, but just to say there was an ease of comfort with um, uh, with kind of how people uh, terror accused defendants interact with the legal process. Um, 
And so that kind of led me to think about different ways and uh, uh, and really think about the technicality more seriously, right? Because, and that's kind of my main kind of theoretical entry point is through this idea of the technicality. So the technicality often in legal in um, legal scholarship, at least, is just dismissed as something pointless, you know. Why does this document need to be signed, why, whatever, even though they have important, like, due process implications. Uh, why does a document need to be signed means a person can be in jail or not jail. You know, the, there's important stuff, but it's but it's overlooked almost as a way. And also, the interesting thing for me was that this technicality became a way for terror accused to impugn the cases against them. For defendants to say that, you know, look at the charge sheet, has not been filed properly. Oh, look, they said this document exists, but it has not been stamped. That means it's not authentic, right? So that's one way of thinking. But also the technicality became a way of articulating their own demands and desires through the law. So the form of the petition, which is chapter, their last chapter in the book, um, is a technical form, right? It's a letter written to a judge or someone else. But this form of the petition allowed for a certain type of voice to emerge. So the technicality became a way of pushing back against the state or pushing or negotiating with the state's official processes, but also the way of making claims upon the law, right? And to use the law to make to make claims against the state. Or um, so for me, that was really interesting about. Uh, thinking about what life can emerge within the law, um, what life is emerges because of the law, what forms of sociality, what modes of knowledge, what forms of sharing of um, information become possible because of the law, right? And so that was really interesting to me. So not just a form of life-denying or life-destroying violence, but a life-engendering type, type process as well. Oh, great. So this kind of brings me to my next question. And it's it's mostly about this argument that you present, right? That courts are everyday spaces marked by mundane legal processes rather than a dramatic environment. And like you just mentioned, you focus on legal technicalities as an entry point into the argument. So constrain this perspective, and this is a question I had while reading the book. Uh, do you believe that these mundane processes potentially disguise the harm and damage that the law is capable of inflicting upon individuals? I don't know if it disguises it. I don't think it disguises it because disguises means it hides it away. It um, puts it in the hiding, or puts it away into a closet of some sort, right? So I don't think there's there's disguising it. Um, it gives away. So I mean, so I guess one example would be if someone is being tortured, right? Um, uh, they're tortured by the police. Then a couple of days later, they're brought before the magistrate. Um, they're slapped around before and therefore they cannot say anything to the magistrate. Later on, after they're sent into judicial custody, um, they they realize, you know, I can write a letter saying that this my confession given under was given under torture or that I was kidnapped, right? Um, so in a sense, it, it allows the violence to come up in a certain way, right? Um, it gives people... Um, and I don't, and this is why I kind of end on an ambivalent note. I'm not sure if it provides an access to justice or an avenue to justice, because I'm not sure what justice means when you've been imprisoned for 14 years and then finally acquitted. But it at least allows people to give a sense of, of what they are going through. Um, it allows people to inhabit the space of the courtroom, right? So I don't know if it, it definitely doesn't, it allows people to bring to the four issues of violence, right? Um, some of that violence may not be articulatable or may not be hearable by the courts, right? Like, for example, um, 
Mohsin, who I speak about in the in the last chapter, he'd been in jail for 14 years, finally acquitted. During that period of time, he had obviously been kind of taken out from the social world, like with his brother's mother or his sister. During the process, his mother dies, his sister dies. Um, and, you know, he's suffered a, lot, suffered a lot of loss. So some of that loss may not be articulatable in terms of a legal form, right? Um, but some of that loss is, right? The fact that he's still writing petitions to this day asking for compensation, right? Um, so the, the, there are ways in which the violence can come out. Um, but there are, you're right. Some sometimes the, the violence isn't articulatable. Or there's no claim to be made um, in in legal language. Uh, yes, and you do mention it as a form of mourning. These petition writing. So could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the the broader context behind um, uh, Mosin's case, kind of the what the case that you brought up or what I was speaking about in the form of mourning was to think about why why people so I, the, the conundrum my conundrum was this right so why do people who um, who were uh, engaging with the law still continue to engage when all evidence was that it would not make a difference right that was my big conundrum like you spend 14 years in jail everything that you have done you know the case against you is fake the police are telling you the case against you is fake uh, everyone assumes that you will get acquitted, but you have spent 14 years doing stuff. Why have you kept on doing it, right? And so I was really intrigued by this person who I call Mosir in the book, and he'd written so many petitions. Like, he didn't know how many petitions they'd written. Um, I'm still kind of collecting, the process of collecting them for another project um, but um, that I'm doing with Mosin. But even he didn't know what he was doing. And so... Well, one way to think about you know, this idea of a constant demand, desire of 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 um of, of a future that could have been right. I'm making a claim upon you. Hear me now. Give me bail. Let me out. Acquit me. Right. And that's a demand that you're making of another person. But another sense that I got from Mosin, and this I suspect might be kind of um, this is probably relevant to other ways of engaging with legal technicalities. Um. Is to th is to think of it as a form of like mourning for all that could have been, like you're constantly doing stuff. You you and every, I mean every time you spoke about uh, spoke to a terror accused, whether it's mundane thing like you know uh, what is this witness talking about, whatever. There's this idea that you know I'm unclear unfairly, right? I should not be here in this position. You are ruining my life. So all the lives that you could be li living, all the futures that you could be having, have suddenly been taken away from you. Because because your world is confined now to the wall, prison walls, the the window outside, um, uh, occasional visits from family and the courtroom space, right? Uh, and so it's this idea of mourning for the futures that could have been, mourning for your life that you have lost, not in terms of a of a physical biological death, but of all of the experiences you could have had. So that kind of mourning that I, that, I, that there was that idea of why people use technicality despite evidence to the contrary is that some mourning comes in there. Yeah, that was a particularly hard chapter, at least for me to read. Uh, but we are going to back up a bit here and I'm going to simply ask you to explain what do you mean by legal technicalities and how did these technicalities become, as you put it, modes of inhabiting the courtroom in order to escape it? Yeah. So I guess, so um, the 
the classic legal definition of a oh, it's not defined actually but the classic the classic legal division of law is technical rules and substantive rules right so a, a substantive rule would be what is the definition of theft right taking property from someone else's custody with the attention of appropriating for oneself that's that would be the substantive rule and so you have lots of stuff written is this is this theft is is um uh, stealing, I don't know, like downloading a book theft, stuff like I don't know. Like you basically kind of articulating um, what the realm of this concept may, might be, what the limit of this concept might be, right? Um, but what's what the substant, what the technical rules are? How do you prove that someone has committed theft? Um, how do when you arrest a person accused of theft? Um, how do you prove what evidence needs to be brought? Does the property need to be bought? If the property is brought to court, does um, who brings it to court? So these minute, these really mundane ways of proving a substantive case, right, is what I'm calling a technicality. The division for, uh, I don't think the division between substance and technical holds, because let's say a judge says uh, in um, that you have committed theft, right? That judgment of the what the definition of theft is applying in your particular case becomes another technical detail where you want to appeal, right? So it becomes a mode of doing things. So for me, the technical was uh, the the division between technical and substantive is a fake one. I don't think it's a valid one. It is. Um, however, I, I persist with the idea of technical because it allowed me to access. Another kind of the etymological uh, root of technicality, which is techne, right? Which is a mode of knowledge of of that 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 is acquired by doing things, right? So it's not a, a mode of knowledge. It's not episteme that where you oh, sorry where you learn things, right? Because someone has taught it to you, but it's a mode of knowledge by by doing. Um, so the classic way would be, I mean, I'll tell you one way that the. Um, that one of the defendants told me is that I, as a lawyer, he told me that, you know, you have absar gyan, meaning that you have literal knowledge, you have literature. The people have taught you law, you can write it down, whatever. That's absar meaning letter. I have, he has anubhav gyan or experiential knowledge, right? He learned the law by doing things with it. And so for me, like the technical became a way of understanding what people are doing with this. So techne, this mode of knowledge that is that is that one inhabits by constantly doing something. So whether it's craft work, pottery, or carpentry, right? So this was kind of the uh, the, um, the the similarities between pottery, uh, carpentry, and what the terror accused defendants were doing in the law because they're constantly doing stuff with it, right? Um, so it's uh, doing stuff with um, with case files, doing stuff with legal language, right? So it they they're constantly copying out. Trying different scenarios, um, trying to understand what what this word means. Um, so, for example, in one of the chapters, I have a, I have this this big debate on what does um, what does cognizance mean, right? Cognizance is a very technical process of of where the magistrate says, okay, here is a particular case um, that a charge sheet has been filed. Here is a particular case where. Um, whether judges, whether police are saying such and such thing happened, yes, this on first glance, this looks like a case of terrorism, right? But the question, the question in these particular cases was cognizance properly taken by the magistrate. Could the judge, could the magistrate have taken cognizance in this particular circumstance? The answer was eventually no. 
But, um, and so these ways of constantly doing things with law, with legal processes, um, is, a, is, a is a form of technique, it's a form of technical knowledge, of, of understanding by doing. And it's that thing that I wanted to capture through this idea of, of technicalities. Uh, thank you so much for the clarification. Uh, I think you perfectly explained that to us. Um, I, I think I'll now jump into the body of your work. So uh, particularly chapter one. Um, you also discuss how the police serves as the initial point of contact for terror accused individuals with the legal system. And how this contact is often marked by uh, violence and deception. So could you also elaborate on how these early interaction with the police shape the consciousness of the terror accused individuals towards the law? Um, yeah, so as I kind of said, like, yeah. so most the kind of the, let's say the, the stereotype, typical narrative of a terror accused, a terror accused when, they, when their first contact is that they were kidnapped by the police from a certain place. Uh, they were taken into illegal custody for three or four days, right? They didn't know whether they were being held. Um, and typically, the kidnapping happens from outside Delhi. Um, so whether it's UP, Kashmir, um, where else, uh, Haryana, um, or within Delhi itself, that you're taken from one place where you're living and then taken to another place. And you don't even know that the police, the time they're arresting you, or they're taking you to with the time they're kidnapping you. They're being plain clothes. They're not... They're not they're not wearing um, any uniform. They take you're taken in a in a random vehicle. You're not taking a police vehicle, so you you get to this random place. They'll, they'll ask you some questions. Um, um, some of the some of the, you'll have you'll have narratives of torture. Um, some will be quite bad. Um, some of it will be, you know, just awful to awful torture. Some of it will be less awful torture, for lack of a better description. Um, but you know, it's just just. Um, so that kind of initial shock to the system um, uh, is something that kind of marks marks the the thing. But it's, it's interesting because as the as the kind of cues move along, it because the first part of contact with the with the police, it's often they will think back like like the kind of the the scene that I narrate in chapter one of the book of um, this guy. There's a moment of condolence between um, uh, the police officer's son died, um, and the terror accused condoles the police officer. Um, and but but that, that same police officer had kind of illegally arrested um, other people as well, right? And so it's that kind of first intimacy that comes that comes through. So it's it's quite because I mean, for lack of a better word, torture and violence is quite an intimate process. Right, um, your cajole, your not just slapping someone or physically harming something, someone with your own body, but there's also the element. Okay, tell me now, tell me now. Okay, beta, beta, don't worry, I won't hit you anymore. You know something. There's also that level of intimacy that comes across. So it's quite an intimate process, being both the person who commits acts of violence and also a person who on the receiving end of that violence. Um, so it's it's this kind of fear and deception and just not knowing where you are, what you're doing. Uh, will someone come and save you? This does the outside world know where you are? So you're forced in an intimate situation with someone else at the same time being cut off by by from your, the other world, right? Um, do your parents know? Do your brother know? Why why is someone coming looking for me? So these are the questions that kind of come up uh, for the kind of defendants. Um, I feel like I've gone off straight off topic now. Yes. 
Uh, okay, uh, so I definitely thought that the concept of custodial intimacy that you you talk about is very interesting. And I was wondering if you could discuss that with perhaps an example or two for the listeners. And another offshoot question that I have for this is, did the terror accused who kind of developed an intimacy with the police remain vigilant and cognizant of the power dynamic that undergirded their relationship with them? Um, yeah, so just to answer the first part of your question, it kind of comes on from my last answer. So one of the things that, that intrigued me was how terror accused, they were defendants, would um, say, for example, Officer X tortured, illegally kidnapped, um, beat them, threatened their family, right, on the one hand, but also be so intimate with um, the terror accused, like this, the example I gave you just now of of the defendant con- offering his condolences to um, to uh, the police officer. I mean, just after that, what happened was that the police officer talks about how he arrested and illegally arrested two other people. Um, he talks about how and the it, and he he talks in that context. He's talking about what it means to love, what it means to have a friendship, and it just this just blew my mind, right? Because you know person who illegally arrested you is accusing you of being a terrorist of uh, 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 being a terrorist is accusing you of the most heinous of crimes is also the person with whom you discuss love with also whom you discuss death also with whom you discuss um questions of friendship right so i was really puzzled by this thing how is it possible that these two um experiences of being in custody um can be, how do these two things sit together, right? And so for me, the idea of custodial intimacy kind of captures these two elements. So there's one hand, the violent aspect, kidnap, torture, beating, threats, threats to your family, etc., right? And the fact that you're incarcerated for 14 years, it's itself a violent experience. And then there's the, for lack of a better description, the, something that approaches something like friendliness, right? Um, you hug, you talk to each other's families, you like, how is... How was your mother? I'm really sorry about your sons who passed away. Um, yes, you know, it's 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 this kind of intimacy that I was trying to capture through um, these kind of through two sim- seemingly like disparate experiences through this idea of custodial intimacy. Um, and I don't think they're separate. Like th- I think they're very much enmeshed. So just to answer the latter part of your question, I think they're very well aware of what of of kind of the of the um, this 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 stark dichotomy and how they relate to the police, right? Which is why I think when I asked them how do you relate to the police, when I asked the defendants how you relate to the police officer, even though the interactions in the courtroom may have been friendly, they could not name it as friendship, right? Um, they could not name it as anything. It just one of I mean we don't often go around naming our friends and say this is my friend, this is friend A, friend B. You know, we don't name the classes of friends. But there's an there's a experience of that, and there's a there's this kind of behavior that you have with your friends. Um, but the if someone said, you know, is this person your friend? I'd be yes, this person is my friend, or is not my friend. But it was intriguing for me that that the Tedra Cues could not name this as a friendship. Um, and so I think so that that for me says that they're very much aware of the position that they are placed vis-a-vis vis-a-vis the police officers. Um, they know they'll eventually be acquitted because that's the standard process for that's the standard outcome for many terrorism cases. But that that's not the question over here. The question is how do you 
inhabit the space while you're there, right? And the police officers can make life hell for you if they want. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so I think for me, it's custodial intimacy allowed for an experience of violence, allowed for an experience of something that approach friendliness, but also allows one to understand that these two things are constantly intertwined with one another. Um, so you can say someone is friendly, but you're already suspecting motives, suspecting something else. Um, yeah, and if I remember correctly, one of the defendants actually said something along the lines of "Karna padta hai," you have to do it to you. Have to do it, yeah. So there's an instrumental quality to it as well, but it's not it's not something that I observed. I don't think you don't have to offer to someone condolences for their son's death. Um, Right. At the same time, sometimes something, sometimes we horrible, bad stuff would happen to police officers. I mean, like, yeah, serves the guy, right? So, um, at the end, in the last chapter, I speak about this one police officer, particularly notorious for committing um, acts of kidnapping. Um, he had um, he had a car accident and he had some facial damage, and his eyes in uh, he ended up with a squint. And so, you know, the one of the uh, the defenders like, yeah, serves him right. It's uh, he may not get justice in in we may justice may not come to him from the law, but at least Allah has given him justice. So there's that element as well. Right. My next question is about your concept of recycled legality. So you dedicated a bunch of vignettes in your work about the terror accused learning to work with the language of the law or legal language through this proposed concept of recycled legality. Could you discuss that further? Yeah, so this kind of recycled legality, well, the word recycled or the is kind of parallels um of a uh, uh, a concept um coined by um media anthropologist Ravi Sundaram, what calls recycled modernity, right? And so the idea over there is that you have all these symbols of modernity, VHS, CD, MP3 players, etc., and but people are using them in their own ways, right? And the classic example, I think many people know this example, is that washing machines in Punjab in the 80s, they were used to make lassi not wash their clothes, right? And so this this aspect of the, the recycledness of what you're doing with things in front of you, um, that I was really intrigued by, right? So and you, it's a very similar process that happens in in um, in the courtrooms, right? Um, so basically to, to kind of give you a brief narrative of what that particular chapter speaks about, um, it's about these terror accused who are kidnapped from Kashmir, brought to Delhi for trial. Um, they were accused of, um, attempting to bring explosives into Delhi and then there was a shootout and they were accused of trying to kill police officers as well, right? Um, and so these men, they could read only Urdu, uh, and could not read Hindi or English. Um, but through this really slow process of translation, they they managed to read the entire charge sheet against them, what the police case against uh, against them was. Um, and they tried different things. They kind of um, uh, they um, then they hear about the uh, the Right to Information Act, right? Um, and they go, okay, maybe this something could help us over there. Um, but and so we need to we need to get information from the police about our case. But even to get that information, you need to know what to ask for, right? You need to know that there's something called a police log. You need to know that there's something called a vehicle log, which is supposed to track the kilometers that a police vehicle has done on a certain day. Um, if uh, if arms are being used, the police do ready to requisition the arms, sign it out, 
when it comes back, sign it back in, say how much ammunition has been used, right? So even that knowledge is something that you develop over time by reading the charge sheet, by asking people around you. So it's this kind of recycledness of trying to understand what the what the law can do and what the limits of law are is what I'm calling recycled legality. It's not it's not um, it's not learning the law through instruction, but learning the law by constantly working with it, right? Um, so even it kind of this extends into in court proceed proceedings as well. Um, can you cross examine? What does this concept mean, right? Which is not to say that there is a high degree of accuracy or that a lawyer would say this is a good strategy, but that isn't the point. The point is the fact that you can make language intelligible to yourself, that you can inhabit that language in order to articulate your demands and desires and your vision of the future or whatever that is, right? And so it's, it's, it's and there's a strong, right, with Constinian element to it and drawing from Augustine stuff, that you, that you use language in order to articulate your own desires, right? Now, anyone who's seen a child knows that often that, um, that the child will use language incorrectly, quote-unquote. Um, but that isn't the point. The child can still make the demands, right? Can still articulate what the child wants. So it's a very similar process of learning language as if you were a child, right? You're, you're borrowing language. You, hear, you heard something. You're using that concept. You saw something written. You use that. Um, so it's this idea of learning the possibilities and limitations of language that I'm trying to understand through this idea of recycled legality. So is it very similar to the experiential knowledge that you mentioned the terror accused of talking to you about? Yeah, very similar. Like it's this idea of, of, of using um, legal language in a particular way it, through by constant use of you hear it, you deploy it, you see, yes, no, maybe it works, maybe that didn't work. Um, because it's constant sharing of like, because at the time, at least all the terror accused are held in one um, jail complex. And so, you know, you'd have one accused tell his lawyer to do something or the lawyer would do something it might work and then you'd find other accused using similar strategies um so that that kind of cut and paste type lawyering which i was interested in right that is very interesting um so as our time is trying to a close uh, i'd like to ask you about how you position or place your work in the current political context where we have a Hindu majoritarian government in power in India, which is liberally using the UAPA to arrest activists and students. Um, there also appears to be this trust deficit concerning the independence of the judiciary and functionality of the law. I'm not saying this did not exist before, but it seemed to have deepened. Um, in the light of this, what insights or reflections can you work off of? Yeah, um, it's a good, very good question because uh, you'll see in, in people who read will read the conclusion where it's kind of haunted by the present. Um, the book is kind of haunted by kind of what is happening right now in India. Um, I think what's been interesting um, for me is that it's a it's so so just to kind of put the example there, like if you think about the CA the anti CAA protests, right? Um, one of the kind of the most moving scenes was the mass recitation of the preamble, Ambar Kilok, right? Um, and that for me articulates sense of we are reclaiming a certain form of legality, a certain form of constitutionalism, right? Uh, and that's obviously a big document. It's a, it's a big, um, it's a big public performance. And for me, there is still there's still the potential to reclaim what the law should be or the, what the law ought to be. 
Um, maybe I've been told that I'm being optimistic. Maybe I am being optimistic um, and or naively optimistic rather. But I think there is still a way in which um, the law can can be reclaimed or should or still has to be reclaimed because once you evacuate and this is I mean this is something that's been articulated different. So I was doing some field work with some um, uh, with lawyers in Hyderabad, so Liberty's lawyers in Hyderabad. Um, and they, it was a very live debate. Some of them said, "No, what's the point anymore? That there's no point in engaging with the with the legal process. It's so stacked that whether whether there's formal pressure or not, formal independence or not, the judges are articulating kind of security idea of law. Right? Law is meant to secure citizens, not provide liberty. Right? Um, and some some people are like you know some lawyers are like you can't not engage with that space. Right? Because you don't engage in the space, what do you want to do? Like the only option is um, rebellion, revolution, whatever, rebellion, etc. Or you just passively accept what's happening. You go away quietly. Um, so you can't not not engage with the space of law, even in the contemporary climate. And people are still doing it. And so I, the UAP has obviously expanded its um, or the use has expanded. It's um, it's definitely more visible, right? And obviously that is it, it's awful. Um, but I, I, at least for me, I don't see a, a way but to engage with the law and engage in the technical process. Because the thing is, once, let's say you're going for complete arbitrariness, right? At least you have the ability to say, you know, whatever you've done, judge, this is the what the 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 process says you should be doing. You have done something not that, right? Yes. There's a there's a there there is a possibility to accuse the law of being hypocritical. There's a possibility of convincing another judge to do something else, right? Because um, I mean, judges are still kind of there's or lawyers are still kind of embedded, uh, wedded to the, the the text, right? So the text says something. Um, there is a ethical cost to not going, uh, not following that text. Um, which I think is something, at least as a strategy, is something that we should hold on to. Yeah. Yeah, and I definitely agree with your answer. I definitely think that it's still, you know, there is a possibility of engagement and there's no option except to engage. Um, so finally, as a final piece of advice, what would you recommend to young scholars and researchers who wish to explore courts as a site of fieldwork? Oh, uh, I would say go for it. I think one of the things that uh, um, people often ask me is how do you get access? And my thing is you just walk in. Um, and that's how I'd say just go for it. I think um, so it's obviously a different space. It's obviously a different type of, um, uh, you know, where it, like any space is very different. You would dress differently. You would talk, speak differently. You would kind of figure out where you go, where what the layout of the courtroom is. Um and so I guess that, so I mean, I spoke to some, some researchers earlier on, well, later, late last year. I kind of told them that you go in, you take notes, you kind of, um, I, I, my way of doing things is never go to the top, is always start from the bottom up. Like talk to the lower bureaucracy, talk to the kind of the, because it's such a, it's such a heavily bureaucratic space. You have, at least in any courtroom, you have the judge, you have a reader, you have someone, you have um, the file keeper, you have the stenographer, you have police officers. So, kind of immerse yourself in that's in that lower, the lower bureaucratic space, because um, for me that's where the, a lot of interesting ha thing happens with, with especially. I mean, I'm focused on technicalities, so that's for me is where the technical details of the court court emerge. Um, 
So I would say go for it and start low. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a privilege to speak to you. Uh, thank you. Thanks to everyone for thank joining. You. Thank you, Sadakshi.